Will you join me? We'll pray. Father, we ask that you would open the eyes of our heart, that we might see the hope to, to which you've called us, that we might see the riches that we have being together as the saints of God, and that we might know the power of your Spirit. In Christ's name, amen. Well, as you heard that passage read, I wonder what your response was. I think it's very hard for modern people to not hear something like that and go, well, isn't this just ancient folk doing their best to deal with mental illness with some myth thrown in? They're just trying to understand it. But before we are too critical about their perspective, we need to be critical about our own perspective, our own age. Especially those of us who have grown up in the West, where we've been led to believe that what's really real are molecules in motion and matter. But does that really do justice to the evil that we encounter and experience in life? Does it? Can we really say that that's a satisfying answer? Whether we're talking about the abuse and torture of children by a California couple this past year, whether we're talking about genocide in Bangladesh, or we're talking about another school shooting where the governor of Florida described it as absolute pure evil. Sometimes these are the only words and ways for us. And even the greatest skeptic at some point is going to come to say, there must be evil that transcends humanity. There has to be greater evil behind this evil. And this is where the Bible steps in and speaks and gives us wisdom and understanding. The Apostle Paul wrote to Christians in Ephesus and said this, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. It's so easy for you and I to just see flesh and blood, to just see the surface, to just see the tip of the iceberg, to see what counselors call the presenting cause, but not the deeper cause. And so the scripture reminds us, can we actually see what's behind the conflict? Can we look deeper? In our culture, we can get as far as emotion. I think we can look behind the act and get to the emotion, but we don't get to the spirit, which is the deepest level of understanding. And as all good and evil is personal in nature, there has to be a person behind it. This passage tells us, this being identifies this being as Satan or Beelzebub, which means master of the house. Not to be confused with the Les Mis song, okay? Uh, uh, we're talking about something a little bit more serious than that. Um, but the Bible, perhaps uh, to guard us from our own unhealthy obsession, doesn't tell us a whole lot about uh, this Lord of Darkness. Uh, 
We are told a few things that we need to bear in mind that Satan isn't a second God. He's not all-powerful. He's, all, he's not all-knowing. He is a created being, originally created good, but by his own will, turned from God toward wickedness. He exerts great power in this world, but it's no match for the power of the kingdom of God and the kingdom of Christ. It's God who overrules and overrides all things, even when it comes to the most wicked event that ever happened in history, the crucifixion of the Son of God. Even there, we're told that God was overriding and overruling. It happened according to his foreknowledge and set purpose. And in this passage, we get a glimpse of Jesus' authority over evil. As a demonized man presents himself, mute and blind. And as we look at this, we get another glimpse, another understanding, or another side rather, into the miracles of Jesus. The miracles of Jesus have been many things, but we haven't yet looked at them as warfare. The miracles of Jesus are an act of war. They're a battle. And what I'd like us to look at is the conflict and the conquest. Okay? Let's do that. First, the conflict. And we'll look at aggression and affliction. The Bible tells us that all of history should be understood as spiritual warfare. All of history should be understood as spiritual conflict between what is holy and righteous and what is wicked, hateful, and unloving. And we learn this from the early passages of the Bible, from the earliest pages after the man and woman turn away from God, having been tempted by Satan, the battle lines are then drawn. God says as much. He says, the seed of the woman, referring to Christ the Messiah, will crush the head of the serpent. There's going to be a battle. And the story of the Bible just unfolds that battle. If you're trying to think about, well, what's a storyline by which I can understand Scripture? It's that. It's an unfolding spiritual conflict. But it's too simple to just say it's a battle between good and evil. Because in every person, by God's grace or common grace, there's good and there's also evil. It may be more helpful to say on one side you have those that are committed to self-rule, self-righteousness, who reject the idea of needing a Savior and reject the idea of needing grace. That's one side. On the other side, you have people that believe that they are dependent upon God. They are poor in spirit. They are in need of the grace of God and they cry out for a Savior. This is probably a more accurate way to divide humanity and how this battle goes forth in society. And Jesus affirms this two-sided view of life when he says, whoever is not with me is against me and whoever does not gather with me scatter. Now that offends the spirit of our age. Doesn't sound very pluralistic. Doesn't sound very inclusive, does it? But we have to understand when Jesus Christ came, he wasn't offering a brand of new religion. Jesus understood himself to be the unique son of God. He understood himself to be the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus himself would say, there's only one name under heaven by which men can be saved, and it's his own. 
And so Christ enters into this conflict as well. And it's what lies behind the conflict between Jesus and the religious leaders. Which Matthew begins to record more and more of which we see in this passage. And they are actually a perfectly good example of what I was trying to say about good and evil. On the surface, the religious leaders were considered good. Very good. They were considered holy. They cared about the grace of God. They tried to obey the Ten Commandments. That is until they didn't get their way. When Jesus' teaching began to expose them and the crowds began to turn toward Jesus, their hearts were laid bare and we saw who they really were. A true picture of evil, of self-role, of selfish ambition. They go so far to attribute the work of God to the devil. And this is where Jesus warns them about the sin of the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. And this is a sin that always makes people nervous. Right? What is that sin that I committed? It's that one sin, right, that we can't be forgiven of. The devil loves to have a field day with people on this. How are we supposed to understand this? Well, there's a couple things in the text that make it clear. First of all, the Pharisees hadn't committed that sin. That's why Jesus was warning them. So even as far as they went, they hadn't committed that sin. Second of all, blasphemy itself, when done in ignorance, is not that sin. Jesus himself said, every sin in blasphemy will be forgiven. Whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. And I hope you hear the grace of Jesus Christ there. What a gracious king. Blasphemy even against my name. Everything the vile said against me, even that, I will forgive. This is the story of the Apostle Paul, right? Paul himself says, I was a blasphemer. And so we know it's not that. How it's best understood is this. The blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is a clear, conscious, deliberate, deliberate, attributing the work of God, the work of the Holy Spirit, to evil, to the devil. If you're a Christian, you haven't committed it. If you're worried, you haven't committed it. It's a hardness of heart that knowingly knows what it's saying and doing. And so Jesus even warns the Pharisees to beware of that mark. But then he also challenges them about the absurdity of their logic, right? How can a house divided against itself stand? It would make no sense. My assaults against Satan only serve to weaken him. But this then leads us to the second point. The affliction. It says, Then a demon-oppressed man who was blind and mute was brought to him, and he healed him, so that the man spoke and saw. I want you to notice the language. It says that Jesus healed him. He healed a demon-possessed, demon-oppressed man. Now, as you read the Gospel, there are two causes of medical illness. Natural and spiritual Jesus heals both. But also when you read the Gospels, I was going to fix my glasses there, and I just, for a moment, just went like that. If you were wondering what I was doing. I don't know. I don't know why I felt led to say that, but, you know, you were probably thinking, is he, what's going on there, Glenn? Um, But as you often read the Gospel, too, 
you see that demon possession and demon oppression is categorized as an affliction. What I'm saying is it's put in the same category as things like leprosy and fever. There's nothing in the text that indicates sin was the cause. Of course this man was a sinner, just like the paralytic we read about last week, and just like the leper we read about the first week. Now why is this, I think, a significant point? Because there are, in, there are some parts of the church that the way they approach holiness is to say what we must do is identify and cast out demons of pride, demons of lust, demons of greed. And what I have to say is the New Testament does not speak that way. Nowhere do you find that instruction to approach evil that way. Whenever there's sin, even it's the sin of the occult and divination, the response is supposed to be prayer, the word, and repentance. Whenever sin is involved, and this is the pattern you see throughout the Bible, follow me for a second. Israel, throughout its history, got mucked up many times in some deep occultic stuff with the pagan religions, being involved in the rituals, and not once were the priests called to cast out demons. They called, told them to repent. In the New Testament, Simon the magician approaches the apostles. Peter doesn't exercise a demon from him. He calls him to repent. You go to the book of Galatians, and it lists a bunch of vices, and one of the vices is sorcery. And people are called to repent. And so you see, there's a difference between, one, one theologian puts it this way, there's a difference between situational evil, which, is, which Jesus is dealing with here, and moral evil. This quote from Richard Gaffin, I think, is helpful. He says, The New Testament does not connect inhabiting demons, that is possession, to patterns of sin in an individual or the impact of other people's sin. And there he's making a reference to uh, the verse in Exodus where it says the sins of the fathers will be visited upon their children. Also a misunderstood verse. Because there, there's some theology that would say if you had relatives that were involved in some dark stuff generations ago, well, you might be uh, in bondage from that. And then they cite that verse. That is not what that verse is about. That verse says nothing about demon possession. That verse is actually referring to the Ten Commandments in judgment from breaking them. So, but how do we then understand this? I'm not trying to minimize the impact of sin because you know something? Sin can make people crazy. Sin can make people have mental illness. Sin can produce physical illness in people. Sin can make people obsessed, isolated and alienated and self-destructed. Sin is a bad thing. And when sin is in somebody's life, it needs to be dealt with. The question is, how is it to be dealt with? Jesus here, to make it clear, he's healing an afflicted person. He's not dealing with moral sin in the person. We need to be clear on how we deal things. But it also raises the question, can this affliction happen with a Christian? Can a Christian become demon-possessed or demon-oppressed? And the answer to that is an emphatic no. No, they cannot. A Christian might get really messed up with sin because of their volition and the choices they made, and there might be a lot of destruction, but think about it. 
Think about the gospel for a second. What does the gospel teach you and I? If you are a believer, God has raised you from death to life. You have been united to the Son of God in a bond that cannot be broken. You have been adopted into the family of God. You have been named by God. You have been brought into the covenant of God. You have been given the promises of God. More so, the third person of the Christian Trinity, the Holy Spirit, dwells in you permanently. God has planted his flag in your life. Do you believe your father would yield that to the enemy of your souls? His name is staked on it. His promise is staked on it. The devil may tempt people. He might accuse people. He might lie to people. But he cannot possess and master one of Christ's followers. The book of John says, Little children, you are from God and have overcome them. By them, he means spirits of the Antichrist. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. Amen? Amen? Amen. Yeah. We need to say it. We need to believe it. Now, I'm not saying that those outside of Christ can't experience that spiritual affliction. But even if they do, the approach has to be biblical and not derived from movies in the occult, which is many times the approach. You know, we are people that believe the Bible helps us understand everything. And so even with methodology... We've got to be going there. So how about spiritual warfare? Uh, oftentimes as a pastor, you know, I have the privilege of meeting with people. And uh, it's one of the greatest privileges I, you know, I have to hear people's um, confessions, to hear people's weaknesses. And sometimes folks will say, you know, I really feel like I'm in a dark place, a place of warfare. I'm in my apartment and I feel like I sense darkness or I see this or I see that and, you know, different experiences. But the prescription is always the same. It's, we're going to pray and you should set your sights on Christ. Look to Christ. That's where our attention is to be. I think that's why God gave us just a little bit about the devil and a lot about Christ. He was like, I want your attention on my son. So whatever you're dealing with, whatever darkness, whatever struggle, I want to encourage you, get people to pray for you, bring it into community. Remember all these wonderful songs we were singing, huh? No longer a slave to fear. But let's then move to close for the conquest. Jesus says... But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Theologians say the kingdom of God is already and not yet. It's here. It is among us. But it's not yet fully realized. In heaven it will be. But Jesus basically says, if I'm casting out demons, it's here. Or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Jesus is the one that's binding the strong man. That's what he's saying there. That he is plundering the enemy. He's speaking about his power to release and deliver people. And this wasn't his first victory. In fact, we could argue he dealt a mortal blow at his temptation. When the devil tempted him. And again, how did he fight that spiritual warfare? How did he do it? What's that? Word of God. He quoted his Bible, the Old Testament. But the ultimate display of his conquest is achieved 
at his death and resurrection. That's what the scripture tells us. That is the ultimate display of Jesus' victory over darkness. The book of Colossians, the cross, is where he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them. He disarmed the principalities and powers of darkness. And he exposes them to open shame, triumphing over them. And that God has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption and the forgiveness of sins. One theologian has said the cross is the definitive exorcism. And Jesus ascending to the throne of heaven after his resurrection changed the tide, reversed the tide of the war. And so, if you are someone that is united to God through Christ, the unique Son of God, you must know that the power of Satan is broken over you. I try to think of a way to describe it. You know, you and I, in a sense, we do the most foolish thing with sin. It's like we put chains on ourselves that are unlocked and we live with them. You know? But don't, don't, don't you believe those chains are locked? And then move to the point where you believe they're not there. It's for freedom that Christ has set you free. There are many names for the devil in the Scripture. And God has been kind. Uh, The names he's given also reveal his tactics. Right? They reveal what he does. He's called an adversary. But you know what? God has called our refuge and strength. The accuser, he's called. But we're told we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He's called a slanderer. But we're told the blood of Christ speaks a better word about us. He's called a murderer. But we're told our lives are hidden in Christ, who is the resurrection and the life. He's a liar. But we worship the one in the book of Revelation who is called faithful and true. And he is a tempter. But through Christ, no temptation has seized us, which is uncommon to man. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear, but provide a way out. The miracle of the gospel tells us that Christ has conquered the forces of evil for his people. They are conquered. Jesus, in his inaugural sermon, said, I have come to set captives at liberty. I have come to bring liberty to the oppressed. And this is what he has done. He has built his church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. This is the miracle that every believer has in their pocket. And so, as liberated, free soldiers of heaven dressed in the armor of God, having the helmet of salvation. No one's going to mess with my salvation. Having the breastplate of righteousness, Christ's righteousness. Having the shield of faith to extinguish the fiery darts of the accuser. Having the belt of truth that keeps it all together. Having the uh, shoes that are shod by the gospel so I can move in confidence. We can stand in the day of evil. And we can do more than that. We can invade the darkness. 
This is the confidence that God wants us to have, that in his name, in his armor, we move forth into the darkness of our city, the darkness of our own sin and hearts, the darkness of relationships we have, and we bring the light of Christ, who is our king. My friends, as the Apostle Paul said, you know, you're just not a conqueror, you are a super conqueror in Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the victory you've given us in our reigning King Jesus. Would you help each of us appropriate it? And for any here that have not yet bowed the knee and found you, making them a prince or a princess, we pray you would do that now according to your power. In Christ's name, amen.